0: Good morning, everybody. Hymn six hundred twenty seven, six twenty seven, one, five, and ten. Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, turned away God's wrath forever. By his bitter grief and woe, He saved us from the evil fall. Firmly hold with faith unshaken That this food is to be taken, by the sick who are distressed, by hearts that long for peace and rest. Let this food your faith so nourish that its fruit of love may flourish And your neighbor learn from you how much God's wondrous love can do. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies. And grant to your church your saving peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is Psalm 120, verse 2. Let's speak this together. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. I think we're going to work backwards here. You're praying uh, for deliverance from lying lips and deceitful tongue. Now, in some ways, these are synonymous uh, and very often what you see in the Psalms is a doubling of things. So that's not uncommon for the Psalter. However, uh, what is the difference? What are the ways in which being in which your lying lips and a deceitful tongue are different, not synonymous? I want to break down for you why there are different words used, because as G.K. Chesterton so famously wrote, every tiny little word matters, so it's always worth knowing them and arguing about them. Which is me giving you license if you want to be a pedant, by the way. I
1: feel
0: like it's a different action. Okay, why, in what way is it a different action? Okay, I actually hadn't thought of that, but that's a really good insight, that a a lying has you, lying has you as the subject. Deceit has somebody else as the subject. Um, Deceit is why you should never play a board game with me. (coughs) I'll never lie to you, but I will deceive you, okay? So, Lying would be me saying something about myself. Deceit is me trying to get you to do something else. But there's another thing here. Lying is... You're you're right, by the way. And and I appreciate that. I'm going to tell you what I was thinking of here. Lying is falsehood. Deceit is... Half-truths. Is a half-truth false? Holy, yeah. A a, a half-truth is wholly false. The only thing that is wholly true is a whole truth. So even if a half-truth has elements of truth in it, the whole thing is false. Yes?
1: It would appear to me that uh, the lying lips, that's a direct statement this is wrong when it's actually right. But uh, deceitful tongue uh, caters to the person that you're deceiving and you say, you're right, oh, that's great. Yes. Let's talk about this and turn around and spin it in a different direction and low and behold. Yes. It's just
0: the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this all kind of goes together because lying would be... um, The direct, let's say, the direct act of speaking a falsehood. But deceit is a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not as blunt. And you can hit somebody over the head with a two-by-four when you're lying to them. But if you're going to deceive them, it takes a little more finesse. You can't just, you can't do that. Sure, you go behind someone's back or you you try to lead somebody in a certain direction or you give them a half-truth or you try and get them to be comfortable with something. It's not just me saying, the sky's blue and if you don't, you know, girls can be boys and boys can be girls. That's just a flat-out lie. But there's deceit woven into a lie in how you present it, in how you speak some truths, but not others. So the devil is a liar because he speaks blatant falsehoods, but he is also the great deceiver because he pulls the wool over people's eyes and makes them feel comfortable with some things and be- makes people believe, allows people to believe that certain things are acceptable when really they aren't. And that isn't even him just saying, oh, this is right and that's wrong. It's, mo- it's much more intricate than that.
1: Aye. Remember the word cunning.
0: Yes, cunning. Yeah, you don't have to be cunning to be a liar. Referring to the devil. Yes, you don't have to be cunning to tell a lie, but you do have to be cunning to be deceitful. Uh, Deceit is kind of an art. Lying is not. Uh, And here's a really good illustration of that. When your child breaks your front window because they were playing ball in the house, are they cunning when they weave you a tale about what really happened no and the child we all know because we've all been there maybe not the broken window but we've all been there you think oh boy this is just a winner of a tale they're gonna take this one hook line and sinker and then you get to be an adult and you hear that stuff and you just think how dumb do you think I am You you know, I'm looking at everything from a completely different perspective as an adult now, and it's going to take a lot more than that to convince me. Okay, so lying and deceit, they're sort of the same thing. They're related, but but, but they are distinct in some ways. Now, here's the thing, though. This is the thing I really want to get at. Lips and tongue. And yet... So what would we say, what are your lips and your tongue? What kind of, like, how would you classify that? What kind of material? Is it something spiritual or is it something material? Lips and tongue. Pardon me? But I mean the language. If I say the word lips, what do you think of? Something physical, something material, something that is a part of your body, something that is flesh and blood. Why then are we praying, deliver my soul? A soul is something material or spiritual? Spiritual. Spiritual. So why are we praying in this psalm that the Lord would deliver our soul... From the wickedness of the tongue or the lips, which are the flesh. Pardon me. Okay, because the flesh sins. And what does the flesh do against the spirit? Wars, or depending on your translation, sometimes it's lusts, which are both very good. They are at odds with each other. There is enmity between them. And does your soul run the risk of being harmed by the sins that your fallen flesh sees fit to uh, perform? Yes! It, it, it is at risk. So th- this is getting back to long ago when I kept telling you about how important it is to recognize that the soul and the body are united and not separate distinct individual pieces so that what's good for the soul is good for the body and what's bad for the soul is bad for the body but the other it works the other way too so if it's not good for you to speak falsehood because it harms your neighbor it's also not good because it harms your soul sin is not something that just happens in the body it gets down into your very soul so you do, you pray in this, yes, okay, that I wouldn't do this, but why do I pray that I would be truthful and not speak with deceit and with with lies? Because speaking with deceit and speaking with lies is something that does much more than cause harm in this world and in this life. It also does damage to my soul. So there there is the link between body and soul and the effect that sin has upon both the body and upon the soul. So that when you are praying to the Lord, hey, I don't want to do this, it's not only because it causes problems here, it's because this is poison to me. And I don't want to be partaking of poison. I only want the things that are good. So deliver me, O Lord, from these things. Okay, let's speak this again together. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What is the Eighth Commandment? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him and explain everything in the kindest way. You shall some tra- uh, some of the older translations say false witness against your neighbor. If that's the way that you learned it, great. If you learned it as false testimony, great. I mean, it's a translation. So, uh, excuse me. Again, as with all things, speak it the way you you learned it. Um, but false witness, false testimony against your neighbor. It's not just false words. It's not just that I said something that was incorrect about you. It's also any kind of a harsh word, any kind of an unkind word, anything that isn't absolutely glowing and as positive as it can possibly be about you. If I'm not saying the best things that I possibly can about you in truth all of the time, then I am not really honoring this commandment. And I've got something to say about that after the kids are gone. Uh, What does it mean? Well, obviously, again, our motivation is not the neighbor. It's not that Daryl is so great and perfect that I want to talk well of him. It's that even when he is not perfect... I love the Lord and the Lord loves him and because the Lord loves him and deals bountifully with him then I also am to love him and to deal bountifully with him and the way the Lord would speak of him I am to speak of him. Which means that even when your neighbor is a real piece of work what does the Lord say of him? I love him. I love your neighbor. I died for your neighbor. I want your neighbor to be better. I want your neighbor to love me, I have nothing but love for them. And then if anything that you think or says is different than that, you need to go back to the drawing board of thoughts and speech. Uh, So the the Eighth Commandment also ties in with the idea of gossip, being a busybody, which uh, which frankly uh, uh, affects everybody. Because everybody is talking about everybody else behind their backs and even when you're talking about them in a relatively positive way, the idea of spreading the gossip or being chatty Cathy about Joe Blow isn't really protecting or defending their reputation. It's playing fast and loose with reputation. And then this is a pet peeve of mine. Explain everything in the kindest way. What does that mean? I mean, let me, let me give it to you this way. When you're trying to teach somebody how to do something and they do it wrong, this is what I think of, and they do it wrong, and then instead of saying, Man, you, uh, can't you do, I'm trying to teach you this, Aren't? why aren't you listening to me? You say, well, let me explain it to you again. Just do it this way. That's what I always think of. And then I think, but uh, what, why does that matter to me? So the old translation here is actually much better, that you put the best construction on everything, which is to say that you're going to be charitable, which is why when you hear me talk in Bible class, sometimes I will even admit I'm being very uncharitable with what I'm saying right now, which is me admitting I could say this in a much nicer way, and I am choosing not to, which is wrong. So being charitable with what you say. You could say lots of things that are true, factually correct about your neighbor, but also do not defend your neighbor's reputation or speak well of him. So sometimes you are called not to speak the things that are true and that are factually correct when you're in, you know, Paula's Cafe or McDonald's at 7 a.m. with your coffee, and you say, oh, well, did you hear about blah, 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 blah? And you think, are you speaking charitably? Are you putting the very best construction on it? Or are you jumping to conclusions or spreading a rumor that you heard? As an example, and then the kids can go, I hear lots of things at Paula's or at McDonald's, or from the people at Paula's and McDonald's, and it's not, this is, if you wanna go to Paula's and McDonald's in the morning and drink coffee and solve the world's problems, that's, I'm not telling you not to do that. In fact, if you ever run for office, I'd vote for you collectively because that group of people seems to have it going on. (laughs) They know what's up. Uh, This is, I'm just using those because they generally are kind of the popular, everybody knows if you wanna know what's going on, that's where you go.
1: You on Thursday morning you look across the way and there's a bunch of preachers
0: over there. I know, yeah. Every now and then there's a bunch of preachers on Thursday mornings. And uh, you never know what they're talking about. <laughs> they often don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, so uh, you get together, you say, well, this is... Oh, it, no, what I was saying was I hear things and I will always then make one phone call when I hear things and it's always to the person about whom the things were told to me so and so is having surgery this time for this oh let me call that person and I'll tell you this I love this community I love these people I love Paula's cafe and McDonald's at seven in the morning and I love all the people who get there and talk nine times out of ten when I make the phone call and say hey I heard that you had this or that or this was going on. They said, oh, no, no, where'd you hear that? So, nine times out of ten, and this is true, nine times out of ten, what I have thought has been corrected by the person it was actually about, and then you have to take a step back and wonder, is everything that's being said the most truthful and most charitable and the best construction on everything? Obviously not. Obviously not. Okay, so take that as you will. Kids... You can go downstairs now. Uh, I'm going to tell you two things. The language is a little bit blue, which is why the kids are going downstairs first. But it's about the Eighth Commandment. So there's my, my advisor for my STM at the seminary was a, a professor named William Weinrich. William Weinrich. Background in the military. And William Weinrich was and is affectionately, very affectionately, referred to as Wild Bill. And that is a name he has earned. Wild Bill kind of just doesn't care, which is what I like about Wild Bill, because he says things the way they are. At one time, Wild Bill gave some of the best pastoral advice I have heard in the least pastoral way. And what he said was this, Gentlemen, when you're pastors, you can be a smart ass or you can be a dumb ass. I don't really care. Just don't be a jackass. <laughs> No truer words to live by. Another pastor, one who I talk about very affectionately and very often because he is a very dear mentor to me still. Just talked to him on the phone this week, in fact. One of the only people in the world who can talk me off of some of my highest cliffs. Fabulous, fabulous, wonderful man, and a, just a fantastic pastor. Well, he said, some people, I think he said, yeah, including myself, have the tendency to excuse harsh language about or toward their neighbor on the grounds that, well, it's true, isn't it? And you know what I'm talking about with that. You say something about, well, you know, I don't know, Helen down the road. Boy, you could put lipstick on a pig and it would look better than her. Bless her heart. (laughs) And you say, oh, why would you say that? Well, it's true. I'm just speaking the truth. And he said, my wife always reminds me that you, you can tell the truth without being an asshole. Sometimes speaking what is factually true, maybe Helen was not gifted with an overabundance of good looks. But is talking that way about her, even though perhaps it is factually correct, is talking that way about her the most charitable, the most loving, the most kind, the most honorable way to speak about her? No. So here you see that sometimes saying what is factually correct, what is true, isn't still keeping in line with what the eighth commandment is about. Because you're hurting somebody not by the truth, but by the way that you are speaking the truth. Because you're being very unkind and you're being very uncharitable. <laughs> Here's a really, really good example, and this is a true example, and that's why it's going to hit close to home to anybody who lives in this area. You can't tell a fill-in-the-blank last name anything because that family has been hard-headed since they were conceived. And I know that every single one of you here, if you live in this area, can fill in the blank with a name of a people or a family, a last name. You can't deal with a Beerman. You can't deal with a Wright. You can't deal with a Voltmer. You can't deal with a Turnow. Everybody has it. You can't deal with so-and-so. You know, they're all just the most hard-headed batch in the world. That's Well, I was going to say, how many of you are German? Because all of you are (laughs) hard-headed. But it is the German that says, the other German is hard-headed, but not me. So the question then is, is it perhaps factually correct that there are many people of a certain heritage that tend to be more difficult to deal with than others in certain situations? Yes. Would you like to know who one of them is? (laughs) <laughs> Me, because I am cursed with my bloodline of Scottish and Norwegian, which is pretty much all just Viking, and they were not known for being very patient and malleable people. Hardheadedness and stubbornness is a very real thing, and many people do exhibit it and have it, even though many of them are aware of it and struggle with it, and attempt to overcome it. So it might be factually true, but what does it, if you're having trouble dealing with them, what does it do to help you to write it off and say, well, you know, hard headed it's all get out, and they've always been that way, you know. I knew their grandfather, and their grandfather was that way, and their dad was that way, and he's that way too, and I bet you all these kids are going to be that way. You just can't talk any sense to them. Factually, maybe it's true. But what good does it do you to speak that way? really doesn't do anything. Morris.
1: As my absentee brother would say, you can always tell an X, but you can't tell them much.
0: (laughs) Yes. You can always, (laughs) yeah, yeah, so uh, that's an example that hits close to home, uh, only because I've heard it and I know everybody else has heard it too, and I've said it, not about people here, about other people I know. Rhonda. I get
1: because I'm not German, but I'm not German. Oh, oh. (laughs)
0: You're a melting pot. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh huh. Pretty much. Yeah. But, uh, so. <clears throat> fighting with a German Lutheran or not fighting, but uh, sure. Fighting. sure. Having a having a disagreement. With a German Lutheran and saying not just this German Lutheran, but another German Lutherans. I don't know what you're talking about. I wouldn't know
1: either. And it's like, I do <laughs>
0: Now, was that the best construction? Yeah. (laughs) I'm (laughs) honest here, but I'm not lying. What I'm trying to say is what I
1: say to someone is you don't have to
0: be like that. You don't have to be so dang (laughs) stubborn. I'll bet you that's a very effective thing in the discussion, too, isn't it?
1: Because now someone's son and daughter are acting like.:
0: I wouldn't know. This is all hypothetical, of course, isn't it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know anything about that. And now
1: that he only has one day of work left before he retires tomorrow...
0: Hypothetically, this hypothetical individual... Well, when you have your discussion, just make sure everybody's being as charitable as possible.
1: Yes.
0: Yes, but I'm just, I'm just, I don't love this hypothetical. Oh, I, I, no, I, I understand. I don't think she's soliciting advice from the peanut gallery. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You know, there are lots of people who are always right, but they're, of course, the only ones who know that they're always right. What did she say? She said the only way to... Stop
1: a German is to cut off his head and hide it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) See, so, yeah, there's lots of people that are stubborn and hard-headed. It's not exclusively German, but there are lots of other people who have other character traits, and hey, guess what? That's being human. Uh, you just exercise, in some cases, an exorbitant degree of patience, offer a divine amount of grace, and love people the way that God loves them. And the more that you work to love people the way that God loves them, the more you will find they become palatable, despite their many uh, I'm I'm trying to think of a nice word. Yes, despite their many characteristics. Here's the thing, folks, people are messy. And you get this from the bottom of my heart. People are very messy. There's never a black and white solution to dealing with people because even if two people have the same problem, they have it for completely different reasons and they need somewhat different approaches to solutions because they're all different. People are messy and they make messes and they make messes with each other and in themselves. And the best way to deal with people is simply to accept that people are different and to love people because of and in spite of their perceived flaws. Here, character traits. Okay? Um, you know, there's the other kind of person. You might not be stubborn, but you may be so agreeable that you never make a decision. You agree to everything. And because you agree to everything, you never actually commit. To something. That's another kind of a person, too. I mean, there's all different kinds of people. But here's the funny thing. They always end up, the most extreme opposites always end up marrying each other. I think God, I think God does that on purpose. I think he does it on purpose to teach everybody a little bit of patience and love. <laughs> and then you realize that loving people and being patient with people is actually something that doesn't come naturally to anybody, and it's something that you actually have to work at. He said, oh Lord, wait, I have to work on this? Oh my goodness. And he says, well, you're in it now, you can't get out. Morris.
1: We all have feet of clay.
0: Yes, indeed, yeah. Feet of clay, every single one of us.
1: Every single one of us, None of us is perfect. No. And as my life tells me occasionally, if you expect your friends to be perfect, you won't have any
0: friends. That's true. Yeah, if you expect your friends to be perfect, you won't have any friends. And if you expect yourself to be perfect, you're gonna kill yourself. Uh, so pay attention to things take care of people the eighth commandment really you know you love your neighbor how do you love your neighbor you take care of him you take care of his reputation you speak well of him you you speak the truth in love cold hard facts and unmoving reason and logic are not always the best way to go you can be truthful without being, as my pastor mentor has said, you can be truthful without being an asshole about it. And just because something is true doesn't mean that you have to state it in a way that makes the truth harsh. The truth can be a weapon just as much as falsehood can be a weapon. And that's using truth apart from what truth is supposed to be. So that's, the Eighth Commandment encapsulates all of this. Again, as with every commandment, you look at it and you say, I have no idea how the Lord expects me to keep this. Because you want to know something? I like showing up and gossiping over coffee. Now pastors gossip in a different way. Pastors get the Lutheran reporter in the mail and immediately skip all of the articles and everything because the pastors don't care about any of that. And most of the stuff the pastors already know about because pastors just kind of, you know, you know things. So it's like, well, okay, I don't care about any of this. I already know this is happening. I don't care. I don't want to read what somebody else writes about it. But I care about is the classifieds. Why? Because the classifieds for the Lutheran reporter are like the small town police reports or what they used to be. Then they took out all the juicy details and now who cares about reading them? That's my complaint, because I loved the police reports and now they're all the same. I want the details, I want the story, but now they're gone. <laughs> so you agreed the Lutheran reporter for the classifieds because I wanna know what pastors are transferring where, I want to know who's giving up their call. I, know who's, I want to know who's being called. I want to know what congregations in what circuits of what districts are moving or conglomerating. I want to know all this tiny little stuff because I'm nosy, and so is every other pastor. So pastors get together over a beer or a coffee, and they talk about, well, did you hear about so-and-so, professor, or this, or did you hear about this... Concordia University, and all of a sudden, well, did you hear about these guys? Did you you read the Lutheran Report? Did you see these guys were transferring out? What happened there? Oh, I heard from a friend that this this, this, this. is what pastors do. And pastors are just as bad as the 7 a.m. McDonald's crowd. (laughs) Everybody does it. You want to know why? Because it's fun. You all know it, it's fun. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, I think it's fun too. The question is not, is it fun? The question is, should we think it's fun and also engage in it? The answer to that is probably not. But boy, is it nice to know what's going on. You don't even have to ever tell anybody either. You just kind of get a personal sense of satisfaction that you know the things that are happening. I don't know, maybe that isn't universal. Maybe I'm just some kind of psychopath. I think most pastors tend to be psychopaths in one way or another. They're just really good at hiding it. That's why you should never play a board game with your pastor, because your pastor can't hide it when he's playing a board game with you. Because your pastor's got to play to win. So, any questions about the Eighth Commandment? Okay, very good. Yeah, the commandments are rough. Or, well, they don't have to be, but they, they, they can be when you really start to understand them for what they are and realize how deep they go. If you really want to understand how deep the Ten Commandments go, there are these traditional Lutheran booklets that that the Lutheran Church was putting out even in the 16th and 17th centuries that were supposed to be uh, aids for you when you were preparing to go to private confession and absolution. They were supposed to be aids to you in one, reminding you that you, you did need to go to confession and absolution because you needed to confess that you were a sinner and you needed to receive absolution. Because remember, the beginning of the service with the confession and absolution like we have, that wasn't there. It was expected that you would come to receive confession and absolution before you would come to church. But then you say, well, what am I supposed to confess? And you know, of course, the small catechism says, well, have you been you know, examine your life according to the Ten Commandments. Uh, are you a, a husband, wife, father, mother, hus- or son, daughter, wife, or worker, or whatever? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you hurt anybody by your thoughts or actions? And you look at all that, and that's just very basic, and you say, well, yeah, you know, I, I can kind of check the boxes here, but there are these big pamphlets that you could look at, and they would break it down. I mean, you 12 pages on all of the different ways that you can break the First Commandment. And I mean, you can't even, you can't get, a page into that before you're going, oh, wow, please, I can't read anymore. Yeah, okay, I recognize it. I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And I have some of those because my plan is to start handing them out with the catechumenate when when we go through that stuff because it's interesting to look through those and read them and to really see what are the depths of the Ten Commandments. And when we talk about the things that we should not do and the things that we should do by virtue of God's commands, where is it that we're falling there? We know we're falling short, but where, how short are we really falling? They're really interesting. So now, uh, large catechism. I want to finish up with this large catechism business. I want to read to you from the wisdom of uh, Solomon in the Apocrypha. So this is the, the third article of the Creed in the large catechism. We, taught, we started on this. Meanwhile, however, while sanctification has begun and is growing daily, remember that justification is being forgiven, sanctification is living forgiven, which means that that's something that's both ongoing and something that can get bigger and better over time. And there is kind of the expectation that it will get bigger and better over time. The early church used to talk about ladders so that your, your life as a Christian, is you climbing a ladder or climbing a staircase, and the end goal is that you get as high as you possibly can, you know, you never just say, ah, yes, the Lord has presented me with this new life, isn't that great that I have this new life? And the Lord says, well, yes, it is great that you have this new life, but but what are you going to do with it? I gave it to you for a reason. Now live it, and you'll be that way. So the early church talks about the ladders or the staircase, and yeah, you might miss a handhold or a foothold, or your foot might slip, and you might actually come tumbling down a couple stairs, and that's okay. That's all part of the climb. That's all part of the Christian life. It has its ups and downs, but if you were to graph it, what you want to see is that, at the very least, it kind of has a steady incline to it, that you're slowly working on yourself, and by the grace of God and by the working of the Holy Spirit, being a better and more faithful Christian throughout the entirety of your life, so that the day of your conversion, is you're not the same kind of Christian then as you are at the, on, on your deathbed, but that's a lifelong thing. We expect that our flesh will be destroyed and buried with all its uncleanness. Uh, Well, it has to be, because there's still original sin, which is your condition. That's why we say your sins can be forgiven, yes. And that's a good thing, and you should come and confess your sins and receive absolution. But you still bear original sin, which is the disease. So we're going to treat the disease and all of its symptoms the very best that we can, and make it... so that you live with this disease the best that you are possibly, so you get the best quality of life you can possibly have given the circumstances of your ailment. But with the full knowledge that eventually this ailment is going to catch up with you and it's going to get checked you can't outrun the disease forever eventually it will bring you down but then your hope is that even though the disease is going to ravage me and take me from this world the treatments that I have been getting are so good that they actually extend beyond the grave what kind of what kind of earthly medicine can you say that about that it actually extends beyond the grave. When's the last time somebody coded in the hospital and they said, well, don't worry, we've been giving them medicine for the last two weeks, so you know, in a little bit, they're just gonna pop up and rise again from the dead. Okay. I haven't heard it yet. Who knows though, science is always coming up with wonderful new things, maybe they'll get there someday. But the problem is that man is always on a quest for immortality. Man wants to live longer. You want to preserve your life to the best that you're able. You want to live longer. You want to eliminate anything that could possibly take you from this world. And it's a fantasy life. It's a fantasy life that, one, doesn't acknowledge that the thing that's causing your death is not anything that human medicine can treat. It's something far deeper than that. And two, It's uh, saying that you have the power and ability to do that if you really put your minds to it, that you can actually beat death. Lots of people said that they were going to beat death. Guess what happened to them? They died. Mm -hmm. All kinds of health nuts, all kinds of scientists, all kinds of spiritualists. You can beat death. Well, they're all dead now. So whatever they were doing didn't really seem like it worked. And will come forth gloriously. Now remember, that this is what we're talking about. Sown in corruption, raised, reaped in incorruption. And arise to entire and perfect holiness in a new eternal life. There's the resurrection. You're going to be raised just the way you are now, only much better you're going to have your body, but it's not going to be a sinful body. What is that going to be like? I have no idea. Can't even begin to tell you, because the only thing that you know now is having a body that is a sinful body. How can you possibly fathom or conceive of anything other than that? You can't. All you know is that that's what it's going to be. For now, we are only half pure and holy. Ah, do you see this? We're only half pure and holy. What is meant by half-pure and holy here? we
1: are still sinners.
0: Okay, sure. Yes, yeah, you're only half-pure and holy because you're still sinners. That's where this the, the simul justus et peccatur, now if you were in midweek, you know what the simul justus et peccatur is, and if you are not, if you were not in midweek with me, You know it by its English, which is simultaneously or at once, both saint and sinner. How can that possibly be? Well, in the words of the large catechism, you are only half pure and holy because you still bear a flesh that has original sin, that has that disease in it. You can be uh, treated to high heaven, and you are actually quite literally treated to high heaven. Uh, But... At the end of the day, the fact still remains that this is a sinful creation and that you're wearing a flesh that is chocked full of that disease of of original sin and that's your condition, so there's only so far in this life that you can go. So that the Holy Ghost has ever to continue his work in us through the word. This is a paradox of the church. The Holy Spirit works in you by the Word, but how is the Word to delivered to you? Not by me. Lord forbid that it's by me. How is the Word delivered to you? Somebody, somebody just said it, and I want you to say it louder so I can give you credit. Yes, good, you get the full credit for that. The Holy Spirit is the one that works through the Word, but the Word comes to you by the working of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is constantly at work. This is why it's it's actually bad for you if Christ was not ascended. It's better for you that Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father and then sends the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, the Paraclete to you. This is what uh, Pentecost is all about. Because who who is preaching on Pentecost and after that we're still in Pentecost? Who is preaching? No. Who is doing the preaching? Jesus Christ. Jesus, Christ. Jesus is. It's, nothing has changed. It is exactly the same right now as it always has been, which is that Jesus is doing the preaching. But the question is, how is Jesus doing the preaching? Well, in times past... Jesus was doing the preaching by standing up in his flesh and blood and speaking with his earthly mouth to all of the people that gathered around him at whatever location he was at and then he would have to get up and move to a different location and do it there which meant the word of God was being preached where? Wherever Jesus was. Which means what about wherever Jesus was not? The word was not being preached there. But now Jesus is preaching from heaven through his spirit. And Pentecost is essentially the the recognition that after the ascension, the Lord takes a megaphone to his lips and then points it right at the earth and then keeps on preaching the way he always had, except for now the Sermon on the Mount is not him standing on a mountain to a gathered crowd in the grass. It's him standing up in his throne speaking down to all of creation. All creation is now gathered there by virtue of the Spirit who delivers that word. Then, you know, with what you said, Jim, how does the Spirit deliver that word? Through the office that he has established, the preaching office. So the man stands up, but obviously the man doesn't want to be recognized as the one who's preaching, or he wouldn't cover himself up with so many things. Because the man really isn't speaking. The office is speaking, but it's the spirit that's delivering the word to you. So Jesus is still at work preaching, and Jesus is still present with his people in his word, by his spirit, and, and legitimately with his flesh and blood, but his flesh and blood is doing something different now than it was when it was standing on the mountain just preaching. So the Holy Spirit continues his work in us through the word and Daily to dispense forgiveness. How long will he do this? You don't have to even know what the large catechism says to answer that question. How long is the Holy Spirit going to do that for you? Till you die. Till you die, yeah. You can be silly about it. You can say, how long is the Holy Spirit going to work in me and proclaim the, the word to me and pull me to the sacraments and all that? As long as he needs to. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but when you die, in an instant, you're made to holy. holy,
0: holy. Yeah, better than you ever could. Not half holy. Right. Yeah, not half holy. So, until when? Until we attain to that life where there will be no more forgiveness. Now, that doesn't sound good, does it? A life where there will be no more forgiveness? Is that law or is that gospel? Gospel, there's no need for. Okay. Yes, it is to the believer, gospel. There is no forgiveness because for you there is no need of forgiveness because what is there to forgive? Nothing. For the unbeliever, where there is no forgiveness, however, that is a horrid thing. But for you it's great. So what is there instead? But only perfectly pure and holy people, full of godliness and righteousness, removed and free from sin, death, and all evil in a new, immortal, and glorified body. Behold, all this is to be the office and work of the Holy Ghost, that he begin and daily increase holiness upon earth by means of these two things, the Christian church and the forgiveness of sins. But in our dissolution, he will accomplish it all together in an instant and will forever preserve us therein by the last two parts. This is, you hear, everything that we've been talking about. When does your purification happen? In an instant. Twinkling of an eye. eye. Snap of a finger, like that. That's really important to know, firstly, that that there does have to be some kind of a purification because the body that goes into the ground is not the same body that can get into heaven. Like we, like that's in uh, Revelation 21. We, were just, we just did that last week and the week before. The, there is nothing that is unclean that can enter in. Well, the body that goes down is unclean. Which means that something has to happen in between the body going down and the body being raised up and brought into paradise. What is it? It needs to be cleaned. You need to take a little bath. Or really, you know, if we want to say it's like a twinkling of an eye, it's like the kids who played outside all day and dad gets out the garden hose. All right, ma- mother's going to kill me if you go in with muddy feet. Come over here for a minute. All right, go in. You know, it's kind of, that's a little bit of a crass way to talk about it, but the illustration will stick in your head. Okay? When you're coming up out of the ground, there's still some stuff in you that... Or, or excuse me, when you go down into the ground, there's still stuff sticking to you that isn't quite great. There's the stink of, not of death, but the stink of your original sin. The, stink, the stench of death is the stench of your original sin. It isn't death itself. It's, it's the, the disease. And it's the manifestation of the disease. But that's cleaned away. There's no more of it. You're not half holy anymore. Now you're fully holy. And now that's how you, in the words of the catechism, then get to live before God in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness forever. Now, this is the... uh, There's a little bit of German here. Bill's not here, so I'm not going to do it. I mean, I, not to say that other people wouldn't appreciate it, but it doesn't, we don't necessarily have to do that. Now, I want to also then look at the Apocrypha. Everybody needs to read the Apocrypha. I've said it before, I've said it again. Every good Christian must read the Apocrypha. Reading the Apocrypha will not take you down at all, but what it will do is make you a better Christian. Because the church has always approved of the Apocrypha, and as we have discussed many times here, even the old Lutheran Bibles that the pastors would take up into the pulpit and used to preach contained the Apocrypha, and even the Lutheran lectionary, the historic Lutheran lectionary that goes back and was used at the time of the Reformation, contains assigned and prescribed readings from the Apocrypha. It's not a Catholic book. It's okay, it's a Christian book. So just, and it's beautiful, frankly, there's a lot of really, really great stuff. And you're missing out. If you don't read it, you're just missing out. And you know what I think about good books. I don't want anybody to miss out on something that's really good. Which is why I say, you gotta read it. You just have to read it. So, uh, was that a? Oh, I, I thought I heard some, somebody scoff. No, a chair. Oh, it was a chair, okay. I I thought that somebody, I looked down and I thought somebody went, (laughs) and and of of course, you know, reputation. It was, I'm always drawn first. And it was, but there was something about the expression on your face where I thought, well, that could have been the follow-up expression of a scoff. I, I couldn't tell. I'm sorry. Thank you. This is important, by the way. It's important that you see this. Pastor can commit a sin and should apologize, and and pastor can receive forgiveness from you too. That's important. The pastor that thinks he's above your forgiveness is not a pastor worth having. All right, let's look at this. Oh, this is the wisdom of Solomon. So this is uh, there's Proverbs, which is written by Solomon. There's Ecclesiastes. There's Song of Solomon. Those are scripture. But then there are other things that Solomon also wrote in his wisdom, mainly wisdom. <laughs> and uh, that's a canonical book. The church has always said this is a really important book. It's just not quite scripture. So. Uh, but here's what he writes, and this is important for two reasons. One, because it helps to inform what we actually think about death and the grave and the resurrection and all of that. But it also is important for you to know this because this is a passage that is used by uh, Roman Catholicism in their defense of the doctrine of purgatory as they have it laid out. And what, so I want to read this to you so that you actually hear one of their proof passages, as we would call them, Sades Doctrine, and um, that you understand where they are coming from. Because the, the, the doctrines, the, the way that these things are taught that is different from denomination to denomination is not based on a difference of text. It's based on a difference of interpretation of text. What does this text mean? We don't all agree on exactly what it means. So what I want, that's why I want you to hear this and know it so that you can hear it and say, well, w- well, when I read this and I look at this within my framework, what does it mean? But I can also understand how somebody else might read it and understand it this way. This is me helping to be you know, safeguarding myself, but also helping you to be charitable in how we deal with the, the doctrines that we disagree with, which are not necessarily heretical, but we just don't necessarily agree that they are true. So, uh, wisdom three, but the souls of the righteous, actually, no, I'm, I'm actually going to go back a little bit to give you the context, the end of chapter two, Because this is also very important. For God created man to be immortal. Beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Sin is never the intent. And made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that are of his side (coughs) do find it. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. Now, first of all, just for a minute, think about how that's worded. Now, Scripture has things like that everywhere. Uh, Revelation talks a lot about that. Revelation 21, there is no day or night there. They just bask in the light of God who holds them. Uh, The sun does not scorch them there. The the scorching heat of the sun is something that happens after the fall. When you go out and toil in your fields and get sweaty and tired and exhausted and frustrated repairing your tractors or pulling rocks out of the field or whatever it is that you're doing, none of that is the intent of creation. Now the sun is there, but the sun is not intended to be a source of burden and heat In the sight of the unwise they seemed to die. This is why I love this so much. In the sight of the unwise they seemed to die. In other words, the person who didn't know any better and attended a funeral would think that somebody had died. But the Christian comes to the funeral and sees the person who doesn't know what's going on and says, hey, hey, what's the matter? Did somebody die? And the person says, what are you talking about? Look at that. There's a casket right there. Are you blind? And the Christian says, oh, that. Oh, don't worry about that. No, 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 no. They're not dead. They're just, they're just sleeping. Just tucked in for a long sleep. Yeah, Jesus is going to come and wake them up. They only look like they're dead, but they're not. I'll share with you a funny story. When my great grandpa died, uh, who was, I think he was, I don't know, 93, 94 when he died? And it was standing room only at his funeral. My great grandpa was probably one of of the best men I've ever known in my life. And I routinely say that if I could be even a fraction of the kind of man that he would be, I would consider it a win. Just fabulous man. And uh, standing room only at his funeral, which I think is a good testament to the kind of man he was because not many 90-year-old men have standing room only at their funerals. (coughs) But we walk into the funeral house and my great-grandmother was there and my youngest sister was very young. I think two or three, I don't, young. (laughs) And they had an open casket because that's what my great-grandma wanted. Uh, Most people in my family don't care for that. They had an open casket and my mom took my youngest sister over there and she kind of looked at him and, you know, you can tell, you could tell she was looking at him thinking, this something doesn't look right here. And my great-grandma came up and she patted the head of my youngest sister and she said, oh, he's, he's just at peace now, he's, he's sleeping. And my youngest sister, out of the mouths of babes, she took a step back and she looked at my great-grandma and she went, oh, he's sleeping? Well, I thought he was just dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kids just are the most wonderful. They are the greatest teachers. But that's it. The, those who don't know any better think that they have died. They seem to have died. But you, now you know better. You know they haven't really because if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. You can be sad that they're not with you anymore, but you're not sad because they died, because you know they didn't die. Oh, well, that's sad because I'm lonely now, but I'll see you again soon, and I know that. And that'll keep me going, that I know someday I'll see you again. Because you only seemed to die. You're only taken away from me, but for the shortest of times. And then I'll be with you again for eternity and it'll be just the best thing in the world. Okay, we'll finish up this uh, excerpt here ne- uh, next time. We'll see you at the altar. Oh, wait, it's Reformation today, which means that we do our annual divine service, setting five, which really is the Deutsche Mass, Luther's German hymn mass. So make sure you keep your big packet, because it has all the hymns in it. You don't have to flip through the hymnal to find them. But also, please turn those in at the end of the service, because we reuse those every year. Thank you.